Our text this morning is going to be taken from the New Testament, uh, two passages. First of all, from Matthew chapter 23, and we'll read the first 12 verses of that familiar story. This week, Thursday, many churches around the nation and the world will celebrate what is called Epiphany. And the Epiphany word simply means the revelation or the appearance. And it always refers to the appearance of uh, God to the Gentiles, those magi who come to seek and worship the Savior. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and uh, this will seem a little bit like a history lesson, but there will be point, a point or two, hopefully, that you can take home with you. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, or yes, at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has born, been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then we're going to look to Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 18 of that passage and read through verse 29. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God called, has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This is God's word. So the Magi traveled several hundred miles, we believed, to come and look and bow before and to worship the Christ child. Now we know there's a lot of false information that has been floating around about this Magi group. Uh, we, we know, for example, that this is probably because of some medieval artists whose paintings depict these, these Magi. It's also from songs that are not totally Christian in their approach. There are some Christmas card writers, artists who put things together that also depict storylines that probably aren't true. For example, we, we know that the Magi didn't visit Jesus while he was lying in a manger. That, that was not the way it happened. Matthew tells us exactly that they, they came to the house where he was staying. We also know, of course, that this could not have happened immediately after Jesus' birth because when the Magi talked to King Herod, uh, they, they discussed the fact that there was a star that appeared some time earlier. And so King Herod, when he ordered all the babies to be born, uh, born two years and, uh, and younger to be killed around Bethlehem, that was an indication, of course, that uh, he didn't know the exact time, but he was suspicious that this may have been some two years prior. So... Given these clues, you know, I, I'm glad uh, to be able to report to you that um, on the way to church this morning, as I crossed Chicago Drive, uh, the three wise men are still on their way. <laughs> they're, they're, they're coming. Uh, I don't know if they're going to stop here at the church or not, but uh, this is part of the, the picture. Three wise men. Where, where did we get that notion that there were three Matthew, of course, does not tell us how many there were. The number three, of course, is always associated with the number of gifts that were brought to, uh, to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, uh, and so that probably is how that worked out. And so there were, in the Middle Ages, again, this insistence that there had to have been three. As a matter of fact, there was a, um, a Middle Ages uh, bishop who claimed to have found the skulls of these three wise men. And if you go to Europe, there's a certain cathedral that you can go to visit to find these body parts uh, still on display uh, for us uh, as well. But the truth is, the scripture that the Magi who came from the East uh, were, were not that kind of people that we often think of. And so let me just give you a little bit of an indication historically of who they were. Uh, we know, in looking back into the Old Testament and to history and to archaeology itself, that there are some truths that we can actually glean from it all. The word magi often gives us the word magic, and that's not exactly the right terminology either. The magi were a group of people from Persia and Babylon, far east or near east, who had, um, who had a special gift, and they, and they were 
astrologers and they were astronomers. Now, astrology and astronomers were kind of melded together into one. Uh, astrology is the study of stars. Uh, astronomy is the study of stars. And astrology is the, is the superstition that surrounds all of that that says, you know, the stars in the sky actually tell us, forewarn us, of things that have happened here on this earth. And so they were, they were looking at the mystical vision of all these stars and planets moving around in space. These magi were very much interested in the study of stars and astronomy. And in those days, uh, we know that uh, that caused them to rise to the level of being very important people in the, in the country in which they lived. Over time, in Babylon especially, they became the high-ranking officials in government, the astronomy and the astrologers and the magi. You might remember how when a few months ago we began working here at Georgetown Church and I preached a short series of sermons on the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we have this rather interesting story of how Daniel relates to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Judah and Jerusalem and we know that he took several hundred perhaps young men, the brightest and best of all those men, and brought them out to Babylon in order to kind of teach them as trainees in Babylonian culture and politics. And among those who were taken was Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We learned back then that out of these first Jewish deportees, those three, and especially Daniel, rose to the position of the highest order of those who were in the authority in the government of Babylon. We looked a few months ago at the story of Daniel chapter 4, which gives us a unique testimony about King Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's interesting that chapter 4 of Daniel is written, dictated perhaps, by Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he, he says that he had a dream, and it was very unsettling to him. And so he needed to have the Magi come to interpret the dream for him. And so he says, I called the Magi, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told them the dream, but they didn't make known to me its interpretation. So finally, Daniel, whom Nebuchadnezzar had renamed as Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar came into the king's presence, and Nebuchadnezzar said to him, Belteshazzar, watch this, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. So by this time now, Daniel has risen to the place of being the chief magician. This is something that people who were Jewish despised. They had nothing to do with magic. They, they were not at all in favor of astrology. And so yet here is Daniel being raised to that position. God raised him to that position for a purpose. God was already planning something that Daniel was to do that was going to be significant for the world to come. And so when Nebuchadnezzar shares his dream with Daniel, it says there in chapter 4, the king wrote this introduction to the, to the chapter, and he says, The Most High God, to the people of every language who live in all the world, it is my pleasure. This is King Nebuchadnezzar talking. This is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God performed for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonder. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So again, it becomes clear that Daniel has been exalted to the position of one who is both a a magician, a magi, and the leader of the magis. The magis were were priests, just much like the Levites were priests in in the Judean culture. These people were religious priests as well. And we know that Daniel was also sharing the gospel, the news of the salvation that God was going to bring with the people of Babylon. We know that they brought with them these deportees, brought with them the books of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, of course, there were clues that were were shared with the Magi because they studied these kinds of things as well. And so quietly, the news of the gospel was being infused into the DNA of those people who were living in faraway Babylon and Persia. For example, there's the story that is written in the book of Numbers, a fascinating little story about King Balak, who recognized that the Jewish people, the Israelites, were coming up along the backside of the Dead Sea and were crossing through his territory of Moab. And in order to stop them, he, he hired a, a prophet who was not Jewish. He may have come all the way from Babylon, some say, that uh, his name was Balaam. And, and he wanted Balaam to stand on the mountaintop and pronounce a curse over Israel. But the interesting thing was that every time Balaam tried to say curse words, pronouncing God's judgment on this people, it always turned into blessing. And, and it's a fascinating story. And then so in the very end, the fourth of the bless, uh, cursed blessings that Balaam spoke, Balaam actually said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will rise out of Jacob. A scepter will rise in Israel. Now we know that the Babylonian people, the astrologers, the magi, looked at those words and said, ah, what does this mean? A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel? The wise men of Babylon must have puzzled over those words. And then there was the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was commissioned by God to write a letter that was supposed to be sent directly to Babylon. And it was supposed to be an explanation of what God had expected, what God was doing to his people there in Babylon. And you can be certain that these pagan priests would have wanted to read that letter from from Jeremiah as well. And here's what Jeremiah writes in chapter 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do just what is right in the land. So here are these astrologers, astronomers, these priests, these wisest of all the people of Babylon and, Jude- and, and uh, Persia, looking at the words of the Old Testament. And they begin to put together something that they were also watching for. And God gave them what was thought to be a new star. A star, which most scholars agree probably was the confluence of planets Saturn and Jupiter, but it was a new thing, only seen occasionally throughout history. And so here it is, these people are putting together the storylines from faraway Babylon, 
And they're saying, this is something we have to go investigate. This is something that, that needs to be looked into. And so they began their journey. Now, just a note, politically, very quickly, political unrest was not just in Judea. The Roman government, which had taken over from, from the Greeks, which had taken over from the Persians, which had taken over from the Babylonians, you know, the four world fair governments. In Babylon, too, they were upset about Roman rule, the heavy taxation and all the rest. And those people who were living in Rome far away, thousands of miles away from Babylon for sure, were upset and con and concerned about what the Babylonians and Persian people were going to be doing in the next revolt because they expected it, the peace of Rome to be disturbed. And so here it is. Now, when all of this comes about, it wasn't just the Jewish people who were chafing. It was those folks as well. So these high government officials from Persia and, and uh, Medo-Persia and Babylon... When they come to see the new king, you can be sure that these high-ranking officials did not just get on their single camels and ride to Jerusalem all by themselves. That would have never happened. They would have had, because they were high government officials, they would have had their entourage of armed guards. They would have had their support staff. They probably would have had even maybe family members who came along with them. So you see, this is, this is no small thing that is coming on into Jerusalem when they arrive there. You can understand why Matthew says that all Jerusalem with Herod was upset and disturbed by the fact that these people had come. For Herod, it was a political question. Are they here to disturb the peace of Rome? Are they here to cause trouble? Who knew? And now they ask the question, so where is he who is born king of the Jews? And, of course, it takes the wise men of Jerusalem, the wisest of the Jewish leaders, to be able to ferret out the place where this, uh, this child king, the star to be born, uh, was, was to be found. And so here it is. You, Bethlehem, though you were least of the tribes of Judah, out of you will come one who is born king of the Jews. Now we know the story and how Herod encouraged them to go find the baby and then report back and how Herod was only intending to destroy the baby when he found him. And then because they didn't return, he had to have all the babies, as many as there were, we don't know, uh, put to death who were two years and younger. But the Magi, when they came, they bowed down and they worshiped the baby. This is, this is amazing. Here are heathen astrologers, polytheists who worshiped so many gods. And here they come into this little town of Bethlehem and they get on their knees in front of a baby and they worship and they open their gifts, their treasures. And gave them to Jesus, which was a blessing because, of course, when Mary and Joseph had to escape into Egypt, they could take those treasures and support their own family with them. But our question this morning is, what, what is the meaning of all of this? Why rehearse the story like that? And what can we learn from it? 
I think for at least three reasons this story is important. This visit of the Magi is important for us. First of all, it helps us set the story of Jesus' birth and the narrative around it in a larger historical setting. For us to understand the Bible, it is necessary for us to draw together the, the history, the archaeology, the, all the rest of the science that was known in those days. The wise men didn't just happen to stumble onto Jesus. They didn't come to Jerusalem by accident. It was God, God himself, who was drawing them in to the relationship that they would have with this newborn baby, a new king. You see, throughout all of history, God has been at work. And that's so important for us to realize. Do you realize how long before all of this happened in Jerusalem and Bethlehem that, that God was orchestrating the affairs of Babylon and Persia to the point where there would be this nucleus of people who would be the first of the Gentiles to come and worship the newborn baby. And this is important for us because we are among the Gentiles, you see. The Magi in the, in the gospel show us that there was a, from the very beginning, the good news of Jesus' birth was not just for the Jews. And Matthew that is interestingly written to the Jewish Christians, wants the Jewish Christians to understand that. It's not just for you folks. It's for the Gentiles. It's for those polytheistic people who lived in Babylon and Persia. And that was God already working centuries before to ensure that this time the name of Jesus would be brought to, to bear on these people's lives. Like Paul writes to the Corinthians, as we read, not many of you were wise by human standards. As I mentioned before, the Jewish people found no good in those Persian and Babylonian people, especially the Magi. They were, they were evil people as far as they were concerned, and yet God was working through the, the, the strangeness and the mysteries of all of this to, to think of astrology and see a star and be pointed to Bethlehem. Not many were wise, to understand this. They, they were foolish things, and yet God chose the foolish things, he says, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and so that no one may boast before him, you see. And then there is this, finally. I think of the lengths to which God has gone and the work that he has done to plant, to nurture, and to grow your and my faith. Why are you here today? Have you ever wondered about that? Out of all the centuries of this world, you and I have been drawn into a relationship with Jesus. And we could say, well, that's because of my, my grandparents, my parents. And that's absolutely right. God's covenant promises have been made sure again in your and my life, the life of our children. But you see, what God is doing through that covenant even, my grandparents weren't all that well educated. I don't know if they even went past eighth grade. By the world standards, they were not very bright people. And yet they had this one truth 
the truth of Jesus and his love for the world, and for me as one of those who were called by God, that they imparted that to my parents and to us as the grandkids. And I bless God for that, you see, because that's how God has been working throughout all the generations of this world, calling out those whom he has chosen and giving them this clue that would allow them to understand the truth of his great love for them. God intentionally has chosen you and me. It's not by accident that you're here. God has used his word and his Holy Spirit and all the members of the church gone past us already to bring us to this point. And we need to celebrate that as we begin this new year as well, to realize that all of this is because God uses the simple things, even things that are called nothing, to bring us into a relationship with himself, to draw us to Jesus. And so we know, we know, as we look back over the backstory of our own ancestors, that God uses some rather interesting strategies, like we saw already this morning, including the worldly wise men into the Christmas story, who would have ever thought of that? But be sure, be sure, God is still at work today. He still has his strategies that he's carrying out. He's not finished in 2021, obviously. And so here we are in a new year, and God is still working to draw all things to their appointed end. And the world around us might consider God's thing foolishness. They might think of it as being silly. And there are people who are very intelligent and they, they lead in, in theological understanding even, but they don't believe in Jesus. And that's because God has blinded their minds to the truth. And it's not because you were so smart either, but because God opened your, your heart, your mind, to understand and to believe the truth of the gospel. And so we, like those Magi people, come and bow before the Christ child, and we worship him, and we offer him our lives as our thank offering. God sent his word and his spirit into the world, and he does amazing things. And for that, we're forever grateful. So on this first day of 2022, first Sunday, we come to this point where we recognize that, um, that God is doing something great. And he's doing it through simple things like broken bread and poured out juice. It's our way of reminding ourselves that God can use even the simplest of things to restore our spirits, to refresh our hearts, to encourage our faith. And so before we take this communion, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord our God, we recognize that what we profess to believe is more like looking through dark and dirty glasses. We're able to understand so little of what you have made and what you have done in our world and especially what you have done through Jesus. And yet you have graciously planted in us the faith to believe that throughout all of history and right up until today, you are working. You're working out your plan to draw all those whom you have chosen to yourself through Jesus. 
And through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, you have made it possible. So our prayer at this time, Lord, is that you will use this sacrament of grace as we taste and touch, as we eat and drink, these common elements that you will use them to speak your assurance and your confidence to each of us so that together with the people all around the world, we might, like the Magi, see and believe and bow and worship and make our lives a living sacrifice to you. Oh God, speak to us now. Open our hearts to hear, to see, to taste your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we do here today is a small step toward an even greater faith. If you would take your cup of bread and open it now, we'll do that together. We do this now in remembrance that Jesus, even on the night when he knew that he was going to be captured, betrayed, brought to trial, and then put to death. On that very night, before he celebrated with his disciples the Passover, he first of all washed his disciples' feet. An amazing show of humility that Jesus, the Savior, would be a foot washer. But it was during the Passover celebration that Jesus took the Passover bread, unleavened bread in this case, and he broke it. And he said, this now is my body, which is broken for you. You are to do this in remembrance of me until I come again. You are to take this and eat it and remember and believe with all your heart that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus. So let's do that now. Take and eat. Remember and believe. And we take the cup. Once again, Jesus on this very same night celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And you need to know that there were four cups that were celebrated during the Passover celebration. Jesus shared the first three cups with his disciples as a way of Passover. But the fourth cup it was called the cup of redemption. And this cup, Jesus poured out and he said, this now is the cup of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take the cup, remembering and believing that the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ was for you, the redemption from all your sins. Take and drink. And once again, a prayer of thanks for the redemption. Ah, oh, Lord Jesus, 
we believe help our unbelief we believe that you came to earth to give your life as the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin we once again accept your gracious gift and offer to ourselves as a living sacrifice of thanks for your gift of redemption thank you for revealing the truth of your love to us simple foolish sinful people as we are we acknowledge lord that you have used things that are far beyond our imagination to bring us to the message of the gospel to bring us to the truth so help us now lord to live out our faith and so to prove it over and over again that all of this is real so that as we live intentionally choosing to become more and more like Jesus, our Savior, choosing to live thankfully in praise. Lord, you know, we know, there is one more cup that many believe that you haven't, didn't drink with your disciples, of which you said, I will never drink again of this fruit of the vine until I come again. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you will drink with us the cup of our salvation, the cup of joy, Lord, come quickly and make us as your people eternally grateful with all those whom you have called. And we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.